Uh, so we, we've been in a sermon series uh, for, I think, 18 weeks now, uh, on 1 Samuel, called The Rise of the King. And 1 Samuel uh, records the major change in leadership in the nation of Israel uh, some 3,000 years ago. And uh, it was that change where they became a nation led by a king. Well, today we're stopping that series for a bit, but we're looking at a psalm which actually helps us to see the purpose of that major change in the nation of Israel all those years ago. That that change of that little nation, having a king, that that was the start of something that was so big something so huge that it has implications for the whole world. Even today, implications for every single person in the whole world, including every one of you here in this room today. What happened 3,000 years ago? It was the start of something. The coming of the King. And uh, Psalm 2, what Psalm 2 does, it actually almost like draws back the curtain, shows us the big picture of what God is doing in the world through his king. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And if you look at the psalm, there are 12 verses. Uh, Those 12 verses can be broken up into four parts, three verses each. And uh, each part, there's a speaker. In the first part, we hear from humanity. Humanity speaks. The second part, we hear from God. He speaks. The third part, we hear from the Messiah, who speaks. And then finally, we hear from, uh, I guess you could call it the narrator or the writer of the psalm, who tells us um, what we need to do in response. So there's there's four speakers, uh, four parts. That means there's going to be four sermon points, Um, not three, four, four points today. So let's look at these four parts. First of all, In verses 1 to 3, I'm going to call this the quest for autonomy. The quest for autonomy. And that's in verses 1 to 3, because here we have the world pictured, humanity pictured, and humanity is pictured as not being uh, indifferent to God or uh, not being um, ignorant of God, but rather hostile toward God and at war with God. And see the words that are used. Why do the nations rage? Uh, Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, see, they set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And so we see here there's a a war taking place. Uh, The the picture, it's almost, you can imagine, a a mob riot. You know, when you watch the news, um, actually nearly every night, (laughs) there's always scenes of of a riot somewhere in the world where you have a massive crowd of angry people throwing rocks and bottles that, are, that have, um, I guess, some flammable liquid in them and they're on fire and cars are being overturned and burned and uh, riot police come out to try to, try to stop this, uh, this, this situation spiralling out of control. That's really the picture here in Psalm 2. But it's not just a local event. This is the whole world. Every single person in the whole world gathered as a massive mob, rioting against the Lord. That's the picture here. 
And uh, you notice that they're raging, they're um, plotting. That word plot there at the end of verse 1 is the same word that's used in the previous psalm, in Psalm 1, uh, for what believers do with God's word. What do believers do with God's word? They meditate on it. It's exactly the same word in the original language. It's just translated in a different nuance. And uh, so when you think about plotting, you can see it's this, this idea of you know, really thinking something through, which is what believers do with God's word. Uh, here they are, the, the people described in Psalm 2, they're, they're looked at as, as meditating and uh, ruminating on and plotting what? How to escape from God. How to get rid of God. That's the picture. But notice it's not just against um, God himself, but it also says at the end of verse 2, and against his anointed. So this is against the anointed. Now, who is the anointed? Well, this is where the 1 Samuel series helps us because we've seen that the anointed is, of course, the king in Israel. Uh, David is the Lord, was the Lord's anointed. And uh, David, uh, he certainly experienced a lot of hostility uh, on his way to, being, uh, to taking the throne. I remember King Saul tried to kill him about 20 times. And uh, so this psalm, it's describing the, the world's hostility against the king that God has set in place. And yet we know that this psalm is talking about someone far greater than King David. This psalm is talking about the anointed. And we know that in, in well, I've mentioned this in the uh, 1 Samuel, that that word anointed, it's actually the word uh, in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. When it's translated into the Greek, it's the word Christ. Okay, the Christ. So who is it talking about? Well, we know from every page of the New Testament, this is actually talking about Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. This is a picture of the world raging and plotting against Jesus, the rightful king of the universe. And it's interesting how the apostles um, applied these verses uh, in that account that we read in Acts 4, you know, that one that Andrew read, where Peter and John, uh, not yet Alex, that's for later, <laughs> Peter and John were um, put in prison because they were telling people about Jesus. They were saying that Jesus is the king and you need to submit to him. And of course the authorities, they hated that. So they grabbed Peter and John, they threw, threw them in jail and uh, they uh, realised that they really had no basis to charge them. So they eventually let them go. And Peter and John, they went back to their local church and they called a little prayer meeting. And what did they pray? They prayed Psalm 2. They prayed these verses in verse, verses 1 and 2. And what they did, they, they recognised that the threats that they were experiencing as followers of Jesus was the very thing that the Bible has always been talking about, that's been predicted for thousands of years, that the world hates the rightful king of the universe. The world hates the Lord's anointed. And so whenever you align yourself with him, with the true king, guess what? You're going to be hated too. The apostles felt that. That's why they prayed Psalm 2 
in light of being put in jail. And, uh, you know, Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He said that in John 15. So Psalm 2, Psalm 2, this is about Jesus. It's about, and verses 1 to 2 are about the hostility of the world toward um, the Lord Jesus. Now in verse 3, remember I said that we get to hear each party speaking. And here in verse 3, we hear um, this mob, uh, we hear what they're saying. So look at verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, what does that mean? Burst bonds, cast cords, that's very odd. What does that mean? Well, bonds and cords, what are they? They're reforms of restraint. Okay, bonds and cords are just forms of restraint. And so what these people are saying is they're saying they don't want any of the restraints that God puts on life. Okay, God does put restraints on life, doesn't he? I mean, he's, he's the creator. Okay, he has um, instructions on how life works, which is what creators always do. <laughs> they make something and go, you know, this is, this is how it works. Uh, God does that with his creation. He puts restraints in place. And what do the nations and the kings say? We've got to get rid of those restraints. We don't want them. We don't want to have to live within these boundaries that God puts in place. And so whether those restraints are God's laws like the Ten Commandments or whether they are God's um, created order, you know how there's, there's created order in the way God made the world to work and particularly in things like marriage and gender and uh, in um, you know, Sabbath, work and rest, these things that are part of the very structure of creation... But what do the nations and the kings say? We've got to get rid of those things. Those things are too restrictive. We want freedom. We want to be able to do things the way we decide. And the, these, these restrictions, these restraints, the cords, the bonds, these are things that God has put in place for our good. He puts them there so that human beings can flourish, so that society can function, so there can be harmony. And yet, kings and the nations they say we don't want anything to do with it we want to be free and that's why I call this point a declaration of autonomy because that word autonomy what it means is self-rule you know auto uh, autonomous it's uh, self-rule this is this is depicting people who, who just say, I want to rule my own life. I don't want to have God telling me how to live. I don't want to have God setting the rules. I want to be a law unto myself. I want to do things my way. <clears throat> and uh, that, that's a picture of the whole world. And, and that, so that actually means that it includes everyone. Every single human being is depicted in verses 1 and 2. You know, it says kings and, and nations, and we can sort of think, oh, that sounds very out there, you know, very ancient maybe. But no, no, this is talking about every single human being. This is the heart within every single human being, the heart that says, I don't want God ruling over me. And where does this 
where does this come from? Why is it that every human being is born into the world with a heart that says, I don't want God to rule me? Why is that? Well, it all goes back to Adam, the first human being who was placed in that Garden of Eden under God's rule. Everything was perfect. And he decided that, no, he wants to be boss. And so he rejected God, chose to go his own way. And as a result, he's brought sin into the world. And what is sin? Sin is actually this declaration of autonomy. Sin is self-rule. That, that is the essence of sin. And thanks to Adam, every human being is born with a sinful heart. And so if you are to put every human heart under a microscope and go, what is the problem of the human heart? It's this quest for autonomy. Don't want to submit to God. Wants to live. We want to live our own way. <clears throat> and so that's in every single one of us, which means that verses 1 to 3, this is the reality of the world that we live in today. Okay, why is the world like it is? Why is there so much fighting and wars? And why is it that when we watch the news every night, not that you do because it's always the same, uh, but why is it that, that it's always the same in that here's a fight, here's a, a problem, here's, you know, here's all these things breaking apart, here, here are societies collapsing. Why is the state of the world like that? Psalm 2 tells us. It's because at the, in the very heart of every human being is this rejection of God's rule. And so we see it everywhere, in every part of society. Everywhere we look, everywhere we go, we always see it. And because it's the very air we breathe, really, it's, it's easy to forget that it's there because it's so normal. And yet when, whenever you turn the TV on and you see what are the standards of entertainment, they're saying, let's throw off God's standards. Let's have these other standards. Uh, you see it in every selfish act, every um, decision that's driven by greed, every struggle for human power, every fight, every war. You know when your toddler screams, no! <laughs> what is that? It's this, it's this declaration of autonomy. I want to live my own way. don't want to have someone ruling over me. And that's the problem of the world. <clears throat> it's what we see in ourselves as we fail to fully submit uh, to the Lord ourselves. And that's why the world is broken. It's why it often looks like the world is out of control. You know, we talk about God being in control and you look out in the world and you go, really? But here's why. It's not because God's lost the plot. It's because human beings have. We've rejected the true king. So that's the first one. That's the quest for autonomy. Uh, but second, though, we see a very big contrast in verses 4 to 6. And here we see the confidence of sovereignty. The confidence of sov sovereignty. Because uh, here, this is... You know, we've had the picture of humanity. Now we get the picture of God. What is God doing while all of this raging is going on? What is he doing? He's, he's sitting down. He's relaxed. He's chilled. 
Okay, there's all this raging and war and fighting going on down in, in the earth and what's God doing in heaven? Sitting back. <clears throat> Not only that, it says <clears throat> he, uh, he who sits in the heaven laughs. And I, I don't know if you can imagine God laughing. It's a very odd concept, isn't it? God laughing. Uh, but this is not the laughter of being entertained. This is the laughter of um, mockery. This is, um, see the word, uh, where is it in verse 4? The Lord holds them in derision. And that, that, that's the word for mockery. This is, uh, this is like when, um, you know, when you, you know, we just had the grand final yesterday and uh, throughout the season, what are the teams? They're always talking about um, September. You know, when when the, the what is it? The Premiership. That's all I can think about. And what happens when the team who's on the bottom of the ladder halfway through the season says, "Oh yeah, we still think we can make it to the Premiership," and everyone just ha 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 ha, what a joke. Now it's not because it's entertaining. It's because you know, as if it's the laughter of mockery, and that's the sort of laughter that that um, is spoken about here when it says that God sits in heaven when he laughs because he sees all of the, the, the rebellion in the world and it doesn't threaten him. Not once does it give him a grey hair. <laughs> Not once does he, does he go, oh no, what am I going to do? All these people against me. Not once. He sits he laughs because this is the expression of the confidence of sovereignty. This is God. He is in control. So it doesn't matter how many rage. It makes no difference to his position of sovereignty. But he doesn't only laugh. Uh, what else does it say? Verse 5, it says, He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And so we can see that that all of the rebellion, it does actually generate a, another response from God, and that is anger. God is angry over the rebellion. Uh, he, he's never silent or indifferent to evil in the world. He always responds. And verse 5 and 6, it says that God has actually already done something about all the um, evil and rebellion. He's already done something about it. What has he done? Well, he, he tells us in verse 6, he says, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is God's response to all the rebellion. He puts in place a king. And that king will sort it all out. That's the response. And so what this all shows us, when we see God sitting, when we see, hear him laughing, when we, when we see him saying problem solved, he is a king. What does that tell us? It tells us that all of the plotting of humanity, all of the desire to overthrow God and to get rid of his rule, it shows us it's a futile quest. It can never work. Which is why back in verse 1 it says that the, God, that the, um, the people's plot in vain. See, vain, it's futile. It can never happen. You can never win. And again, we, we have in the New Testament the apostles making a very interesting application of that. Uh, because when um, Peter and John were released from prison, they went back and they had that prayer meeting. They prayed Psalm 2. 
And then they thought about the cross of Jesus. Because there was a time in human history when it actually looked like the peoples prevailed over God. There's this one time when it looked like the king that God had put in place, the Messiah, it actually looked like he was defeated because, you know, when he's nailed to a cross and he can't get down, so it would seem, and he breathes his last, you know, anyone looking on would go, finally, we've defeated God. Finally, we've got rid of him. We killed him once and for all. That's how it looked. <clears throat> Three days later, though, all of that <laughs> came undone because he, he rose again. But, but when the apostles think about all of that that happened at the cross, they make this very um, interesting uh, application. Uh, we'll have a look at that one, actually. Uh, in Acts 4.27, <clears throat> so here they say that um, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See how they're applying Psalm 2? But then look what they say. All of these kings and nations, they got together to do what? To do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see what that's saying? All of that conspiring and all of that plotting to get rid of Jesus... What did it actually achieve? It achieved exactly what God had decided beforehand. Do you see that? No matter what the nations do to try to overthrow God, ends up achieving exactly what God planned in the first place. See, that's the confidence of God's sovereignty. You, you can never outsmart God. And that's why Psalm 2 is a very good psalm to reflect on regularly. You know, there's times where we do feel like life is out of control. There are times as a Christian when you feel like we're on the losing side. And I'm sure many of you have felt like that in the last maybe 10 years at certain points. When you hear things in the media, or you might hear a debate and you hear the way Christians are spoken about and, and you think, yikes, we're in trouble. No, we're not. <laughs> because of why? Because look at God. See, whenever you feel afraid, whenever you feel worried, what do you do? You lift your eyes to heaven and you look to the Lord. And what's he doing? All is calm. He's right where he's always been in control, bringing about his plan. See how helpful this psalm is. So that's the confidence of sovereignty. Okay, so the, the quest for autonomy is contrasted with the confidence of God's sovereignty. Now, the third thing we see in this psalm is we see exactly what God is going to do about all of the rebellion, about all of the warring, and that's in verses 7 to 9. And here we, we can call this one, this section's called the decree of authority. Because there's a decree. Now, you know what a decree is. A decree is a, an official proclamation. You know, it's an announcement that the king will make. You know, here's something that's going to happen. This, that's a decree. And so we hear a decree. Let's hear it. And uh, this time it's 
it's actually the Messiah himself speaking, uh, says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here's the decree that shows us why it is that Jesus has the right to be the king of the universe and why it is that he has the right to deal with all of the rebellion in the world. And there's three parts to it. So in verse, in verse 7, we see why Jesus has the authority to be king. And it says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. This is the father speaking to the son. This is why Jesus is the king of the world. It's because of his unique relationship to the father. See, he is the, the son, he is the eternal son. And uh, in Jesus' own, you know, when he became a man, at his baptism, what, what happened? There was this declaration, this decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It happened again at Jesus' transfiguration on that mountain. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. And, uh, the, but the official declaration of Jesus' authority as king, when did it happen? It happened on that third day. When Jesus rose again, that was God's official declaration to the world that this is the true king. This is the one you must recognise as your king, the one you must submit your life to. And this is the king who is going to judge the world. You know, like in Acts uh, 17, says that God has given proof that Jesus is going to judge the world by how? By raising him from the dead. So that's, that's his position of authority. But then we also see the scope of his authority, which is in verse 8. He says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. See how everything belongs to Jesus? That means every single person belongs to him. And then third, we see the force of his authority in verse 9. The force of his authority, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And can you just, can you see that picture in your mind? You know, a piece of pottery smashed on the ground. That's how the nations are spoken of. It's a very sobering picture. And this rod of iron, what is a rod of iron? <laughs> Well, you know what a rod of iron is, but what does it mean? It, it's in that, back then it stood for a symbol of authority. Okay, it could also be translated as, as a scepter. You know, which is something that a king holds. It shows, it's to show his authority. But it's also a tool of punishment. A rod of iron can hurt if you get hit, and, hit by it. Uh, and that's what it is. It's an instrument of punishment. And so this is God's response to the world's rebellion. He's installed Jesus as king. And Jesus is going to deal with all of the rebellion one day. See how verses 8 and uh, 9 are spoken of as a future event, something that's going to happen one day in the future, that Jesus is going to come again. And he is going to judge the world. 
You know, the book of Revelation speaks about him coming uh, not as a gentle, lowly, humble servant, but rather as a king riding on a horse with authority to judge. He is coming. That's what this psalm is depicting. It's looking forward to that day when Jesus will finally come and sort out all of the rebellion and put it all right on that final day. And so that leaves all of us here with a decision to make. And that's, in the, that's laid out in the final three verses where we have here a call to humility. A call to humility. So let's read it. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, now this call, uh, this call to humility, who is it addressed to? It's addressed to kings and rulers. And what's significant about that is that is the very group who were mentioned at the start of the psalm who were trying to overthrow God, which is quite amazing when you think about it because the very ones who deserve to be dashed to pieces like pottery, they're the actual ones who are being invited to respond. Okay, so this is, a, this is an amazing expression of mercy on God's behalf. God could have just said, what, you're rebelling against me? Fine, wipe out, done. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he actually goes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to change, to turn around, to stop pursuing autonomy and actually come back and submit. He gives them an opportunity, a chance to avoid the coming judgment. And that's offered to every single person. You know, every single person who is wanting to get rid of God's rule, God says, I'm giving you an opportunity to turn, to turn back. And it all hangs on what you do with Jesus. Because this tells us that the way to turn back is by turning to Jesus. And look at how we are to turn to him. There's two ways we need to turn to him. We need to turn to him as our king and we need to turn to him as our saviour. So first of all, we need to turn to him as a king. And you see that in, this, um, in verse 11 where it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then it says, kiss the son. So first of all, serve the Lord with fear that's the opposite of serving yourself, <laughs> uh, of trying to be your own king. But this, this phrase, kiss the sun, what does that mean? Uh, you know, it's sort of hard for us because we don't live in a, under a, um, you know, a monarchy in the sense of um, seeing the, uh, what, in the past what people would do when they approach a king, they would always either kiss the king's ring, which was you know, a symbol of his authority, or even kiss his feet. And what was that? It was a sign of submission. It was saying, I am under you. Okay, you have authority over me. And so for us to be called to kiss the son or to kiss Jesus, it's, it's saying we are to come to him and we are to give our lives over to him, saying to him, you are my king. 
I give my life to you. Rule over me. That's the response that we need to make. And so what does it actually mean to treat Jesus as your king? It does mean to obey him. Like Jesus even said, if you love me, you will do what I command. And what are Jesus' commands? His his commands are all summed up in that one command, the greatest command, which is to love God and to love your neighbour. In fact, Jesus calls us even to love our enemies. Why? Because that's exactly what he has done for us. See, we we were part of the crowd. We were part of the, let's get rid of God. And yet God in his grace has invited us to come back which means he has loved us even while we were enemies, which is why when, when, we, when we come under Jesus' authority, we come under the rule of love, which shapes every aspect, every relationship, including those who are against us, which is why when we see the apostles persecuted, they don't go, you know, let's get swords, let's go out and retaliate. What do they do instead? They pray for those people's salvation, which is exactly what we're to do. We're to love our enemies. That's one aspect of obeying Jesus. But then, of course, at the same time, there's that, the fact that we're called to be like Jesus, to live holy lives, lives of purity, uh, godliness. We are to worship God alone. Now, this side of glory, none of us can do these things perfectly. When we think about obeying Jesus... We're always going to fail in many different ways. However, there's a difference between obeying Jesus only when it suits us and actually obeying him as a commitment of life. And that's what he's calling us to. To treat treat Jesus as king is to give your life over to him. It's the opposite of self-rule. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is uh, here we're, we're told to take refuge in Jesus. And that means to take Jesus as saviour. And uh, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice how on the one hand you've got the wrath of Jesus. Uh, It says um, his wrath is quickly kindled. It's a picture of a fire, which is quite um, telling. Uh, A fire that burns. We can escape that, how? By taking refuge in Jesus. There's, There's one commentator who sums this up by saying, there's no refuge from the king, there's only refuge in the king. Now the question is, why is it that the only refuge from the fiery wrath is found in Jesus? Why is is Jesus the only place or the only one who you can be safe from the coming fiery judgment? And the answer is, is because he has already taken that judgment in the place of everyone who believes in him. Now think about it like this. If you're caught in a bushfire, what, what is the safest place you can go to for refuge? It's somewhere that's already been burned. And that's the picture here. 
You know, the fire of judgment is coming on the earth in the future. What is the only place to be safe? Somewhere that's already been burnt. And where is that? That's Jesus. Because on the cross, that's what he did. He offered himself to take on the judgment so that everyone who puts their faith in him, everyone who finds their refuge in him, are now safe. So that when the judgment comes, you can no longer be touched. See, that's the blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus. And so you have those two responses. Okay, because Jesus is the rightful king, who is going to judge the world? You must take him as your king. Give your life over to him. You must take him as your saviour. And there is no other way. There's no other way to take hold of Jesus than king and saviour. And that is the blessing that he brings to the world.